0: Chapter 10, Section 1 of The New Machiavelli by H.G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus. Seeking Associates 1. I have told of my gradual abandonment of the pretensions and habits of party liberalism. In a sense I was moving towards aristocracy regarding the development of the social and individual mental hinterland as the essential thing in human progress, I passed on very naturally to the practical assumption that we wanted what I may call hinterlanders. Of course I do not mean by aristocracy the changing unorganised medley of rich people and privileged people who dominate the civilised world of today, but as opposed to this a possibility of coordinating the will of the finer individuals by habit and literature into a broad common aim. We must have an aristocracy, not of privilege, but of understanding and purpose, or mankind will fail. I find this dawning more and more clearly when I look through my various writings of the years between 1903 and 1910. I was already emerging to plain statements in 1908. I reasoned after this fashion. The line of human improvement and the expansion of human life lies in the direction of education and finer initiatives. If humanity cannot develop an education far beyond anything that is now provided, if it cannot collectively invent devices and solve problems on a much richer, broader scale than it does at the present time, it cannot hope to achieve any very much finer order or any more general happiness than it now enjoys. We must believe, therefore, that it can develop such a training and education, or we must abandon secular constructive hope. And here my peculiar difficulty as against crude democracy comes in. If humanity at large is capable of that high education and those creative freedoms our hope demands, much more must its better and more vigorous types be so capable. And if those who have power and leisure now, and freedom to respond to imaginative appeals, cannot be won to the idea of collective self-development, then the whole of humanity cannot be won to that from that one passes to what has become my general conception in politics the conception of the constructive imagination working upon the vast complex of powerful people clever people enterprising people influential people amidst whom power is diffused today to produce that self-conscious highly selective open-minded devoted aristocratic culture which seems to me to be the necessary next phase in the development of human affairs. I see human progress not as the spontaneous product of crowds of raw minds swayed by elementary needs, but as a natural but elaborate result of intricate human interdependencies, of human energy and curiosity liberating and acting at leisure, of human passions and motives modified and redirected by literature and art but now the reader will understand how it came about that disappointed by the essential littleness of liberalism and disillusioned about the representative quality of the professed socialists i turn my mind more and more to a scrutiny of the big people the wealthy and influential people against whom liberalism pits its forces I was asking myself definitely whether, after all, it was not my particular job to work through them and not against them. Was I not altogether out of my element as an ante? Weren't there big, bold qualities about these people that common men lack, and the possibility of far more splendid dreams? Were they really the obstacles? Might they not be rather the vehicles of the possible new braveries of life? 2. The faults of the imperialist movement were obvious enough. The conception of the Boer War had been clumsy and puerile, the costly errors of that struggle appalling, and the subsequent campaign of Mr Chamberlain for tariff reform seemed calculated to combine the financial adventures of the Empire in one vast conspiracy against the consumer. The cant of imperialism was easy to learn and use, it was speedily adopted by all sorts of base enterprises and turned to all sorts of base ends but a big child is permitted big mischief and my mind was now continually returning to the persuasion that after all in some development of the idea of imperial patriotism might be found that wide, rough, politically acceptable expression of a constructive dream capable of sustaining a great educational and philosophical movement such as no formula of liberalism supplied. The fact that it readily took vulgar forms only witnessed to its strong popular appeal. Mixed in with the noisiness and humbug of the movement, there appeared a real regard for social efficiency, a real spirit of animation and enterprise. There suddenly appeared in my world, I saw them first, I think, in 1908, a new sort of little boy, a most agreeable development of the slouching, cunning, cigarette-smoking, town-bred youngster, a small boy in a khaki hat and with bare knees and athletic bearing, earnestly engaged in wholesome and invigorating games up to and occasionally a little beyond his strength. The Boy Scout, I liked the Boy Scout, and I find it difficult to express how much it mattered to me with my growing bias in favour of deliberate national training that liberalism hadn't been able to produce and had indeed never attempted to produce anything of this kind three in those days there existed a dining club called there was some lost allusion to the exorcism of party feeling in its title the pentagram circle it included bailey and dainton and myself sir herbert thorns lord charles kindling minns the poet Goebbold the big railway man lord Gain, fresh from the settlement of framboyer and rumbold who later became home secretary and left us we were men of all parties and very various experiences and our object was to discuss the welfare of the Empire in a disinterested spirit. We dined monthly at the Mermaid in Westminster and for a couple of years we kept up an average attendance of ten out of fourteen. The dinner time was given up to desultory conversation and it is odd how warm and good the social atmosphere of that little gathering became as time went on then over the dessert so soon as the waiters had swept away the crumbs and ceased to fret us one of us would open with perhaps fifteen or twenty minutes exposition of some specially prepared question and after him we would deliver ourselves in turn each for three or four minutes when every one present had spoken once talk became general again and it was rare we emerged upon hendon street before midnight sometimes as my house was conveniently near a knot of men would come home with me and go on talking and smoking in my dining-room until two or three we had fred Neil, that wild irish journalist among us towards the end and his stupendous flow of words materially prolonged our closing discussions and made our continuance impossible i learned very much and very many things at those dinners but more particularly did I become familiarised with the habits of mind of such men as Neil, Krupp, Gain, and the one or two other new imperialists who belonged to us. They were nearly all, like Bailey, Oxford men, though mostly of a younger generation, and they were all mysteriously and inexplicably advocates of tariff reform, as if it were the principle, instead of at best a secondary aspect, of constructive policy, they seemed obsessed by the idea that streams of trade could be diverted violently so as to link the parts of the empire by common interests and they were persuaded, I still think mistakenly, that tariff reform would have an immense popular appeal. They were also very keen on military organisation and with a curious little martinet twist in their minds that boded ill for that side of public liberty. So much against them but they were disposed to spend money much more generously on education and research of all sorts than our formless host of liberals seemed likely to do, and they were altogether more accessible than the young liberals to bold constructive ideas affecting the universities and upper classes. The liberals are objectly afraid of the universities. I found myself constantly falling into line with these men in our discussions, and more and more hostile to Dayton's sentimentalising evasions of definite schemes and Minns's trust in such things as the spirit of our people and the general trend of progress. It wasn't that I thought them very much righter than their opponents, I believe all definite party sides at any time are bound to be about equally right and equally lopsided, but that I thought I could get more out of them and what was more important to me more out of myself if i cooperated with them by 1908 i had already arrived at a point where i could be definitely considering a transfer of my political allegiance these abstract questions are inseparably interwoven with my memory of a shining long white table and our hock bottles and burgundy bottles and bottles of perrier and sangalmier and the disturbed central trophy of dessert, and scattered glasses and nutshells, and cigarette ends, and menu cards used for memoranda. I see old Dayton sitting back and cocking his eye to the ceiling in a way he had while he threw warmth into the ancient platitudes of liberalism, and Minns leaning forward, and a little like a cockatoo with a taste for confidences, telling us in a hushed voice of his faith in the destiny of mankind thorns lounges rolling his round face and round eyes from speaker to speaker and sounding the visible depth of misery whenever Neil begins gerbolt and Gain were given to conversation in undertones and bailey pursued mysterious purposes in lisping whispers it was crupp attracted me most he had as people say his eye on me from the beginning he used to speak at me and drifted into a custom of coming home with me very regularly for an after-talk. He opened his heart to me. Neither of us, he said, are dukes, and neither of us are horny-handed sons of toil. We want to get hold of the handles, and to do that one must go where the power is, and give it just as constructive a twist as we can. That's my Toryism. Is it kindlings or gearbolts? no but theirs is soft and mine's hard mine will wear theirs out you and i and bailey are all after the same thing and why aren't we working together are you a confederate i asked suddenly that's a secret nobody tells he said what are the confederates after making aristocracy work i suppose just as i gather you want to do the Confederates were being heard of at that time. They were at once attractive and repellent to me, an odd secret society whose membership nobody knew pledged it was said to impose tariff reform and an ample constructive policy upon the Conservatives. In the press, at any rate, they had an air of deliberately organized power. I have no doubt the rumor of them greatly influenced my ideas. In the end I made some very rapid decisions but for nearly two years I was hesitating. Hesitations were inevitable in such a matter. I was not dealing with any simple question of principle but with elusive and fluctuating estimates of the trend of diverse forces and of the nature of my own powers. All through that period I was asking over and over again how far are these confederates mere dreamers how far-and this was more vital-are they rendering lip service to social organisations is it true they desire war because it confirms the ascendancy of their class how far can conservatism be induced to plan and construct before it resists the thrust towards change is it really in bulk anything more than a mass of prejudice and conceit cynical indulgence and a hard suspicion of, and hostility to, the expropriated classes in the community? That is a research which yields no statistics, an inquiry like asking what is the ruling colour of a chameleon. The shadowy answer varied with my health, varied with my mood and the conduct of the people I was watching. How fine can people be? How generous? Not incidentally, but all round. How far can you educate sons beyond the outlook of their fathers? And how far lift a rich, proud, self-indulgent class above the protest of its business agents and solicitors and its own habits and vanity? Is chivalry in a class possible? Was it ever indeed? Or will it ever indeed be possible? Is the progress that seems attainable in certain directions worth the retrogression that may be its price? Four. It was to the pentagram circle that I first broached the new conceptions that were developing in my mind. I count the evening of my paper the beginning of the movement that created the Blue Weekly and our wing of the present new Tory party. I do that without any excessive egotism because my essay was no solitary man's production. It was my reaction to forces that had come to me very large through my fellow members. Its quick reception by them showed that I was, so to speak, merely the first of the chestnuts to pop. The atmospheric quality of the evening stands out very vividly in my memory. The night, I remember, was warmly foggy when after midnight we went to finish our talk at my house. We had recently changed the rules of the club to admit visitors, and so it happened that i had brought britain and crupp introduced arnold shoesmith my former schoolfellow at city merchants and now the wealthy successor of his father and elder brother i remember his heavy inexpressively handsome face lighting to his rare smile at the sight of me and how little i dreamt of the tragic entanglement that was destined to involve us both gain was present and Esmere, a newly added member but I think Bailey was absent, either he was absent or he said something so entirely characteristic and undistinguished that it has left no impression on my mind. I had broken a little from the traditions of the club, even in my title, which was deliberately a challenge to the liberal idea. It was, the world exists for exceptional people. It is not the title I should choose now for since that time I have got my phrase of mental hinterlander into journalistic use. I should say now, the world exists for mental hinterland. The notes I made of that opening have long since vanished with a thousand other papers, but some odd chance has preserved and brought with me to Italy the menu for the evening. It's back black with the scrawled notes I made of the discussion for my reply. I found it the other day among some letters from Margaret and a copy of the 1909 report of the Poor Law Commission, also rich with pencilled marginalia. My opening was a criticism of the democratic idea and method upon lines such as I have already sufficiently indicated in the preceding sections. I remember how old Dayton fretted in his chair and touched and pished at that even as I gave it, and afterwards we were treated to one of his platitudinous harangues, he sitting back in his chair with that small obstinate eye of his fixed on the ceiling, and a sort of cadaverous glow upon his face, repeating, quite regardless of all my reasoning and all that had been said by others in the debate, the sacred empty phrases that were his soul's refuge from reality. "'You may think it very clever,' he said with a nod of his head to mark his sense of his point, not to trust in the people i do and so on nothing in his life or work had ever shown that he did trust in the people but that was beside the mark he was the party liberal and these were the party incantations after my preliminary attack on vague democracy i went on to show that all human life was virtually aristocratic people must either recognise aristocracy in general or else follow leaders, which is aristocracy in particular. And so I came to my point that the reality of human progress lay necessarily through the establishment of freedoms for the human best and a collective receptivity and understanding. There was a disgusted grunt from Dayton. Superman rubbish! Nietzsche, sure! I sailed on over him to my next propositions. The prime essential in a progressive civilization was the establishment of a more effective selective process for the privilege of higher education and the very highest educational opportunity for the educable. We were too apt to patronise scholarship winners as though a scholarship was toffee given as a reward for virtue. It wasn't any reward at all, it was an invitation to capacity. We had no more right to drag in virtue or any merit but quality than we had to involve it in a search for the tallest man. We didn't want a mere process for the selection of good as distinguished from gifted and able boys. No, you don't, from Dayton. We wanted all the brilliant stuff in the world concentrated upon the development of the world. Just to exasperate Dayton further, I put in a plea for gifts as against character in educational, artistic and legislative work. Good teaching, I said, is better than good conduct. We are becoming idiotic about character. Dayton was too moved to speak. He slewed round upon me an eye of agonised aversion. I expiated on the small proportion of the available ability that is really serving humanity today. I suppose today all the thought, all the art, all the increments of knowledge that matter are supplied so far as the English-speaking community is concerned by, how many, by three or four thousand individuals. Less, said Thorns, to be more precise by the mental hinterlands of three or four thousand individuals. We who know some of the band entertain no illusions as to their innate rarity. We know that they are just the few out of many, the few who got in our world of chance and confusion, the timely stimulus, the apt suggestion at the fortunate moment, the needed training, the leisure. The rest are lost in the crowd, fail through the defects of their qualities, become commonplace workmen and second-rate professional men, marry commonplace wives, are as much waste as the driftage of superfluous pollen in a pine forest is waste decent honest lives said dayton to his breadcrumbs with his chin in his necktie waste and the people who do get what we call opportunity get it usually in extremely limited and cramping forms no man lives a life of intellectual productivity alone he needs not only material and opportunity but helpers, resonators. Round and about what I might call the real men, you want the sympathetic co-operators who help by understanding. It isn't that our salt of three or four thousand is needlessly rare. It is sustained by far too small and undifferentiated a public. Most of the good men we know are not really doing the very best work of their gifts. Nearly all are a little adapted, most as shockingly adapted to some second-best use. Now I take it this is the very centre and origin of the muddle, futility and unhappiness that distresses us. It's the cardinal problem of the state to discover, develop and use the exceptional gifts of men. And I see that best done, I drift more and more away from the common stuff of legislative and administrative activity, by a quite revolutionary development of the educational machinery but by a still more unprecedented attempt to keep science going to keep literature going and to keep what is the necessary spur of all science and literature an intelligent and appreciative criticism going you know none of these things have ever been kept going hitherto they've come unexpectedly and inexplicably hear hear from dayton cough nodding of the head and an expression of mystical profundity. They've lit up a civilization and vanished, to give place to darkness again. Now the modern state doesn't mean to go back to darkness again, and so it's got to keep its light burning. I went on to attack the present organisation of our schools and universities, which seemed elaborately designed to turn the well-behaved, uncritical and uncreative men of each generation into the authoritative leaders of the next and I suggested remedies upon lines that I have already indicated in the earlier chapters of this story. So far I had the substance of the club with me, but I opened new ground and set Krupp agog by confessing my doubt from which party or combination of groups these developments of science and literature and educational organisation could most reasonably be expected i looked up to find crupp's dark little eye intent upon me there i left it to them we had an astonishingly good discussion neil burst once but we emerged from his flood after a time and dayton had his interlude the rest was all close keen examination of my problem i see crupp now with his arm bent before him on the table in a way we had as though it was jointed throughout its length like a lobster's antenna, his plump, short-fingered hand crushing up a walnut shell into smaller and smaller fragments. Remington, he said, has given us the data for a movement, a really possible movement. It's not only possible but necessary, urgently necessary, I think, if the Empire is to go on. We're working altogether too much at the social basement in education and training said Gain, remington is right about our neglect of the higher levels britain made a good contribution with an analysis of what he called the spirit of a country and what made it the modern community needs its serious men to be artistic and its artists to be taken seriously i remember his saying the day has gone by for either dull responsibility or merely witty art I remember very vividly how Shoesmith harped on an idea I had thrown out of using some sort of review or weekly to express and elaborate these conceptions of a new, severer, aristocratic culture. It would have to be done amazingly well, said Britton, and my mind went back to my school days and that ancient enterprise of ours and how Cossington had rushed it. "'Well, Cossington had too many papers nowadays to interfere with us, "'and we perhaps had learnt some defensive devices.' "'But this thing has to be linked to some political party,' said Crupp, with his eye on me. "'You can't get away from that. "'The Liberals,' he added, "'have never done anything for research or literature.' "'They had a royal commission on the dramatic censorship,' said Thorns, with a note of minute fairness.' "'It shows what they were made of,' he added. "'It's what I've told Remington again and again,' said Crupp. "'We've got to pick up the tradition of aristocracy, reorganize it, and make it work. "'But he's certainly suggested a method.' "'There won't be much aristocracy to pick up,' "'said Dayton darkly to the ceiling, "'if the House of Lords throws out the budget.' "'All the more reason for picking it up,' said Neil, "'for we can't do without it.' will they go to the bad or will they rise from the ashes aristocrats indeed if the liberals come in overwhelmingly said Britton. it's we who might decide that said crupp insidiously i agree said gain no one can tell said thorns i doubt if they will get beaten it was an odd fragmentary discussion that night we were all with ideas in our minds at once fine and imperfect we threw out suggestions that showed themselves at once far inadequate, and we tried to qualify them by minor self-contradictions. Britain, I think, got more said than anyone. You all seem to think you want to organise people, particular groups and classes of individuals, he insisted. It isn't that. That's the standing error of politicians. You want to organise a culture civilization isn't a matter of concrete groupings it's a matter of prevailing ideas the problem is how to make bold clear ideas prevail the question for remington and us is just what groups of people will most help this culture forward yes but how are the lords going to behave said crupp you yourself were asking that a little while ago if they win or if they lose, Gain maintained, there will be a movement to reorganise aristocracy. Reform of the House of Lords, they'll call the political form of it. Bailey thinks that, said someone. The Labour people want abolition, said someone. Let them, said Thorns. He became audible, sketching a possibility of action. Suppose all of us were able to work together. It's just one of those indeterminate, confused, eventful times ahead when a steady jet of ideas might produce enormous results. Leave me out of it, said Dayton, if you please. We should, said Thorns under his breath. I took up Krupp's initiative, I remember, and expanded it. I believe we could do extensive things, I insisted. Revivals and reversions of Toryism have been tried so often, said thorns from the young england movement onward not one but has produced its enduring effects i said it's the peculiarity of english conservatism that it's persistently progressive and rejuvenescent i think it must have been about that point that dayton fled our presence after some clumsy sentence that i decided upon reflection was intended to remind me of my duty to my party "'Then I remember thorns firing doubts at me obliquely across the table. "'You can't run a country through its spoilt children,' he said. "'What you call aristocrats are really spoilt children. "'They've had too much of everything except bracing experience.' "'Children can always be educated,' said Krupp. "'I said spoilt children,' said Thorns.
1: "'Look here,
0: Thorns,' said I, if this budget row leads to a storm, and these big people get their power clipped, what's going to happen? Have you thought of that? When they go out lock, stock and barrel, who comes in? Nature abhors a vacuum, said Krupp, supporting me. Bailey's trained officials suggested gain. Quacks with a certificate of approval from Altiora, said Thorns. I admit with the horrors of the alternative, there'd be a massacre in three years. One may go on trying possibilities for ever. I said. One thing emerges. Whatever accidents happen, our civilisation needs, and almost consciously needs, a culture of fine creative minds and all the necessary tolerances, opennesses, considerations that march with that. For my own part, I think that is the most vital thing. Build your ship of state as you will. Get your men as you will i concentrate on what is clearly the affair of my sort of man i want to ensure the quality of the quarter-deck hear hear said Smith suddenly his first remark for a long time a first-rate figure said Smith, gripping it our danger is in missing that i went on muddle isn't ended by transferring power from the muddle-headed few to the muddle-headed many and then cheating the many out of it again in the interests of a bureaucracy of sham experts. But that seems the limit of the liberal imagination. There is no real progress in a country except a rise in the level of its free intellectual activity. All other progress is secondary and dependent. If you take on Bailey's dreams of efficient machinery and a sort of fanatical discipline with no free-moving brains behind it, Confused ugliness becomes rigid ugliness, that's all. No doubt things are moving from looseness to discipline and from irresponsible controls to organised controls. And also, and rather contrary everything is becoming, as people say, democratised. But all the more need in that for an arc in which the living element may be saved. "'Here, here,' said Shoesmith, faint but pursuing." It must have been in my house afterwards that Shoesmith became noticeable. He seemed trying to say something vague and difficult that he didn't get said at all on that occasion. "'We could do immense things with a weekly,' he repeated, echoing Neil, I think, and there he left off and became a mute expressiveness, and it was only afterwards, when I was in bed, that I saw we had our capitalist in our hands.' We parted that night on my doorstep in a tremendous glow. But in that sort of glow, one doesn't act upon without much reconsideration. And it was some months before I made my decision to follow up the indications of that opening talk. Five. I find my thoughts lingering about the pentagram circle. In my developments, it played a large part not so much by starting new trains of thought as by confirming the practicability of things I had already hesitatingly entertained. Discussion with these other men so prominently involved in current affairs endorsed views that otherwise would have seemed only little less remote from actuality than the guardians of Plato or the labour laws of Moore. Among other questions that were never very distant from our discussions, that came apt to every topic, was the true significance of democracy, tariff reform as a method of international hostility, and the imminence of war. On the first issue I can still recall Little Bailey, glib and winking, explaining that democracy was really just a dodge for getting assent to the ordinances of the expert official by means of the polling booth. If they don't like things, said he they can vote for the opposition candidate and see what happens then and that you see is why we don't want proportional representation to let in the wild men i opened my eyes the lids had dropped for a moment under the caress of those smooth sounds to see if bailey's artful forefinger wasn't at the side of his predominant nose the international situation exercised us greatly our meetings were pervaded by the feeling that all things moved towards a day of reckoning with Germany, and I was largely instrumental in keeping up the suggestion that India was in a state of unstable equilibrium, that sooner or later something must happen there, something very serious to our empire. Dayton frankly detested these topics. He was full of that old middle-Victorian persuasion, that whatever is inconvenient or disagreeable to the english mind could be annihilated by not thinking about it he used to sit low in his chair and look mulish militarism he would declare in a tone of the utmost moral fervour is a curse it's an unmitigated curse then he would cough shortly and twitch his head back and frown and seem astonished beyond measure that after this conclusive statement we could still go on talking of war. All our imperialists were obsessed by the thought of international conflict, and their influence revived for a time those uneasinesses that had been aroused in me for the first time by my continental journey with Willersley, and by Meredith's one of our conquerors that quite justifiable dread of a punishment for all the slackness mental dishonesty presumption mercenary respectability and sentimentalised commercialism of the victorian period at the hands of the better organised more vigorous and now far more highly civilised peoples of central europe seemed to me to have both a good and bad series of consequences it seemed the only thing capable of bracing English minds to education, sustained constructive effort and research. But on the other hand, it produced the quality of a panic, hasty preparation, impatience of thought, a wasteful and sometimes quite futile immediacy. In 1909, for example, there was a vast clamour for eight additional dreadnoughts. We want eight, and we won't wait but no clamour at all about our national waste of inventive talent, our mean standard of intellectual attainment, our disingenuous criticism, and the consequent failure to distinguish men of the quality needed to carry on the modern type of war. Almost universally we have the wrong men in our places of responsibility and the right men in no place at all almost universally we have poorly qualified hesitating and resentful subordinates because our criticism is worthless and so habitually as to be now almost unconsciously dishonest germany is beating england in every matter upon which competition is possible because she attended sedulously to her collective mind for sixty pregnant years because in spite of tremendous defects, she is still far more anxious for quality and achievement than we are. I remember saying that in my paper. From that, I remember, I went on to an image that had flashed into my mind. The British Empire, I said, is like some of those early vertebrated monsters, the Brontosaurus and the Atlantosaurus and such like. It sacrifices intellect to character, its backbone, that is to say, especially in the visceral region, is bigger than its cranium. It's no accident that things are so. We've worked for backbone. We brag about backbone. And if the joints are ankylosed, so much the better. We're still but only half awake to our error. You can't change that suddenly. Turn it round and make it go backwards, interjected Thorns. It's trying to do that, I said, in places and afterwards Krupp declared I had begotten a nightmare which haunted him of nights. He was trying desperately and belatedly to blow a brain as one blows soap-bubbles and such a metzeroic saurian as I had conjured up, while the clumsy monster's fate, all teeth and brains, crept nearer and nearer. I've grown, I think, since those days out of the urgency of that apprehension, I still think a European war, and conceivably a very humiliating war for England, may occur at no very distant date, but I do not think there is any such heroic quality in our governing class as will make that war catastrophic. The prevailing spirit in English life, it is one of the essential secrets of our imperial endurance, is one of underbred aggression in prosperity and diplomatic compromise in moments of danger. We bully haughtily where we can, and assimilate where we must. It is not for nothing that our upper and middle class youth is educated by teachers of the highest character, scholars and gentlemen, men who can pretend quite honestly that Darwinism hasn't upset the historical fool of man, that cricket is moral training, and that socialism is an outrage upon the teachings of Christ. A sort of dignified dexterity of evasion is the national reward. Germany, with a larger population, a vigorous and irreconcilable proletariat, a bolder intellectual training, a harsher spirit, can scarcely fail to drive us at last to a realisation of intolerable strain. So we may never fight at all the war of preparations that has been going on for thirty years may end like a sham fight at last in an umpire's decision we shall proudly but very firmly take the second place for my own part since i love england as much as i detest her present lethargy of soul i pray for a chastening war i wouldn't mind her flag in the dirt if only her spirit would come out of it so I was able to shake off that earlier fear of some final and irrevocable destruction truncating all my schemes. At the most, a European war would be a dramatic episode in the reconstruction I had in view. In India, too, I no longer foresee, as once I was inclined to see, disaster. The English rule in India is surely one of the most extraordinary accidents that has ever happened in history, we are there like a man who has fallen off a ladder onto the neck of an elephant and doesn't know what to do or how to get down. Until something happens, he remains. Our functions in India are absurd. We English do not own that country, do not even rule it. We make nothing happen. At the most, we prevent things happening. We suppress our own literature there. Most English people cannot even go to this land they possess. The authorities would prevent it if messrs peroni or cook organised a cheap tour of manchester operatives it would be stopped no one dare bring the average english voter face to face with the reality of india or let the indian native have a glimpse of the english voter in my time i have talked to english statesmen indian officials and ex-officials viceroys soldiers everyone who might be supposed to know what india signifies and i have prayed them to tell me what they thought we were up to there i am not writing without my book in these matters and beyond a phrase or so about even-handed justice and look at our sedition trials they told me nothing time after time i have heard of that apocryphal native ruler in the northwest who, when asked what would happen if we left India, replied that in a week his men would be in the saddle, and in six months not a rupee nor a virgin would be left in Lower Bengal. That is always given as our conclusive justification. But is it our business to preserve the rupees and virgins of Lower Bengal in a sort of magic inconclusiveness? Better plunder than paralysis, better fire and sword than futility our flag is spread over the peninsula without plans without intentions a vast preventive the sum total of our policy is to arrest any discussion any conferences that would enable the indians to work out a tolerable scheme of the future for themselves but that does not arrest the resentment of men held back from life Consider what it must be for the educated Indian sitting at the feast of contemporary possibilities with his mouth gagged and his hands bound behind him. The spirit of insurrection breaks out in spite of espionage and seizures. Our conflict for inaction develops stupendous absurdities. The other day the British Empire was taking off and examining printed cotton stomach wraps for seditions, emblems and inscriptions. "'In some manner we shall have to come out of India. "'We have had our chance, and we have demonstrated nothing "'but the appalling dullness of our national imagination. "'We are not good enough to do anything with India. "'Codger and Flack and Gates and Dayton, "'Cladding Bowl in the club and the home churchman in the home, "'cant about character, worship of strenuous force and contempt of truth.' For the sake of such men and things as these, we must abandon in fact, if not in appearance, that empty domination. Had we great schools and a powerful teaching, could we boast great men, had we the spirit of truth and creation in our lives, then indeed it might be different. But a race that bears a sceptre must carry gifts to justify it. It does not follow that we shall be driven catastrophically from India. That was my earlier mistake. We are not proud enough in our bones to be ruined by India as Spain was by her empire. We may be able to abandon India with an air of still remaining there. It is our new method. We train our future rulers in the public schools to have a very wholesome respect for strength, and as soon as a power arises in India, in spite of us, be it a man or a culture or a native state, we shall be willing to deal with it. We may or may not have a war, but our governing class will be quick to learn when we are beaten. Then they will repeat our South African diplomacy and arrange for some settlement that will abandon the reality such as it is and preserve the semblance of power. The conqueror de facto will become the new loyal Britain and the democracy at home will be invited to celebrate our recession triumphantly. I am no believer in the imminent dissolution of our empire. I am less and less inclined to see in either India or Germany the probability of an abrupt truncation of those slow intellectual and moral constructions which are the essentials of statecraft. End of chapter ten, section one.